Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Strength to Strength. We're happy to have you all here. I'm excited to hear the, the talk that we have this morning. Uh, Brother John Dee is going to share on economics Jesus' way. It's something that um, we have been grappling with, and it seems like um, there's other people that I've been in contact with or grappling with the same question. What do we do with our money? How do we handle it? Um, it's not a subject that we've had a lot of teaching on, it seems like. So I uh, am really looking forward to hearing what Brother John has to say this morning. But before we get started, um, let's have a word of prayer. Righteous Father in heaven, only wise God, we thank you that we can come before you this way that in this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to hear teaching um, on the teaching of Jesus Christ on a subject that uh, is close to all of our hearts, is something that we deal with on a daily basis. We just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be present today and that the truth would be brought forth in a way that we can understand it and that we can apply it to our lives. We thank you for men like Brother John who are willing to um, tackle this subject and and to teach it. We just pray that you would um, give him words to speak. Yes. That the truth would be made plain and that we can um, further the cause of your kingdom in our finances as well. Just uh, bless this meeting and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to have a question and answer period after this as well. So prepare some questions, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be lots of them. So go ahead, Brother John. Well, first of all, I apologize for my voice. I had uh, a bad fever yesterday, and I feel great this morning, but uh, I still have it in my larynx, so you'll have to put up with that. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> I'm not going to deal with a lot of specifics. I used to do that, and I got myself into all kinds of trouble. Uh, so I think uh, if we get the principles in our hearts, then we can trust the Holy Spirit to help us make our applications because the application part of it is difficult. I say to people, you know, the alcohol and the cigarettes and all of those things, we can just leave those in the store, but we can't leave our money there. Uh, we carry it in our back pocket and we have to deal with it every day and the decisions uh, are varied. And so uh, I think it's, it, first of all, we have to get it in our hearts what Jesus teaches on the subject. And then I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to help you, brother, uh, to apply it. I'd like to start with a story from uh, the sports world. Probably the greatest all-around sports hero in American history was Jim Thorpe. He was the only person, or at least the first person, to win the pentathlon and the decathlon, and these are events where there are five and ten uh, different sports that you have to win all of them uh, to, to win that medal, and he won those <clears throat> in the 1912 Olympics. But he had all his medals removed later because he had broken a rule, and the rule was that to participate in the Olympics, you were permitted only to be an amateur if you ever had received a salary for sports that disqualified you. Well, Jim Thorpe had one time received a very small salary uh, at a very low level of sports, uh, and maybe he had even forgotten it. I don't know. But somebody found out that he had received a small salary uh, for some sports event he was involved in earlier in his life. So they took away all his medals. And that reminds me <clears throat> of what the Bible says. If a man strive for the masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. And so we uh, forfeit our reward if we if we break the rules. Uh, and, and Jim Thorpe is a is a natural example of how that can happen. And the rules are clearly stated. In fact, in one sentence, Jesus stated them very clearly. He said, "You cannot serve God and Mammon." He didn't say you should not. He said you cannot. It's impossible. And so <clears throat> we have to look carefully at what Jesus said about this subject. <clears throat> Um, the Anabaptists actually uh, were very concerned about the subject because there's much said in the Bible on this subject. 38 parables are given by Jesus. 
16 of them are concerned with how to deal with money and possessions. So almost half of Jesus' parables deal with this subject. Somebody has estimated that one out of 10 verses in the Gospels, 288 verses in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible has 500 verses on prayer, 200 verses on faith, and 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And we Anabaptists say you must obey God, even if it's just one verse in the Bible that teaches it. And if you study Anabaptist literature, which James Stair, who has a doctorate, uh, Dr. James Stair, spent his whole lifetime studying the Anabaptists in economics, and he has this to say. He says, <clears throat> the Swiss brethren would have regarded a rotcher, uh, that's R-E-N-T-I-E-R, that I gave the French pronunciation, it means a renter, somebody who makes money off of his property. The Swiss brethren would have regarded a rotcher <clears throat> among their number as just as much a disturbance of the unity and equality of the brethren. Uh, let me quote this again. The Swiss brethren would have regarded a rotcher among their number as just as much a disturbance of their unity and equality of the body of Christ as the Schleitheim articles declared a ruler to be. So they, they were really concerned about this. Uh, and I might at the end give uh, the stairs summary of, of what they taught. So what did Jesus teach about economics? <clears throat> well, his teachings on this subject are very categorical. They don't leave too much room for interpretation. And so if you turn to Matthew 6, we're not going to read the passage, but we're going to be referring to that passage this morning. <clears throat> there are three commands given there. One is that you should not lay up treasure for yourself on this earth. The second one is you are to lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. And the third one is you're not supposed to have any anxious thought about the future. So let's look at these in, in order here. Do not accumulate possessions on this earth. That's what Jesus says. He does not say we are not to lay up possessions. He doesn't say that. We are to lay up our possessions. But he makes it clear that we need to be careful that we lay up treasures in a secure place. I mean, every person who's investing is always concerned about the security of his investments. And that's what Jesus uh, zeroes in on. He says, lay up treasure, lay up lots of treasure, but make sure you lay it up where moths and rust don't uh, take your treasure away. Uh, I think I even see a little bit of sarcasm in Jesus' statement there. Uh, imagine making yourself vulnerable to these little moths that fly around or making yourself vulnerable to rust. Um, that, that's really sort of ridiculous. In fact, James says that if you have treasures that have rust on them, that rust will eventually testify against you. Uh, now, rust is slow oxidation. And uh, fire is fast oxidation. So James is basically saying, if you're, in, if you're involved in oxidation, uh, uh, you're going to be in trouble. So <clears throat> uh, now, in most of Jesus' teachings, he does not give much explanation. He just gives commands, uh, such as, let your light so shine before men, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, swear not at all, give to him that asketh of thee. He gives all these commands in sort of a staccato form without giving any explanation. But in this particular one, Jesus knew that we would need some explanation. Uh, he knew this was probably going to be his most difficult command. So he, he, he takes the time to explain to us why we should not lay up treasures on this earth. <clears throat> so for each of these commands that he gives, he gives some explanation. Now, if you look up the word treasure, you will find it means deposit. It simply means where you have made your deposit. That's where your heart is going to be. Now, we have often read this backwards, and we've said where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And Jesus did not say it that way. He says, show me where you have made your investment. Show me where you put all your time, your money, your interest, your passion. Show me that, and I'll show you where your heart is. So... <clears throat> Our desires are cultivated by our decisions. The Bible says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And then it says, watch what you see, watch what you say, watch where you go. So our desires are cultivated by the things that we do. And I don't think most people realize that. I've often said, we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. People often say to me, uh, why can't I live my life and then repent right before I die? And I said, because you won't be the same person then as you are now. 
and you're assuming you're going to have the same interests and same concerns and the same abilities at that point, but you won't. Each day you're changing in the direction of your decisions. In fact, Peter says the people's hearts have been exercised by covetous practices. And so it's really important what kind of decisions we make in this area, because Jesus said they affect our heart. Our desires are affected by the things that we do. And so uh, uh, he goes on to say uh, that that's the first that's the first explanation he gives that whatever you're doing with your wealth is affecting your heart and your heart will eventually be where your wealth is. The second thing he says is the light of the body is the eye. Uh, Now, that verse is often taken out of context, but it's right here in the context of economics. And what he says is, if you don't get this right, you won't see properly. You will walk in darkness. Uh, Bad bad material decisions result in darkness. I'm always reminded of two, two men that I knew. One man lived in my own community. Uh, he was very conservative and was always preaching about conservative issues, but almost none of his family followed that. But if you looked at his life, his investment was basically financial. He, uh, he went into great uh, financial ventures of all sorts. And if you look at his family, they never caught his spiritual values, but they caught his material values. Uh, I, we pass along to our children what I call nuances of the heart. There's those little unseen indications of what we really value. And I think part of our problem as Christians is we tend to think of morals when we think of Christianity. But Jesus is dealing here with values. Morals is the difference between right and wrong. Values is the difference between what's important and what is of lesser importance. And I think many Christians don't think in terms of values. It's always interesting to me that if you look at Hebrews 11, there's nothing said about those people's morals. It's all about values. And it's interesting that that's the faith chapter. So I think that our values have more to do with our faith. I shouldn't say more to do because our morals are very important. I'm not minimizing those. Let's say it this way. Values have as much to do with our faith and perhaps even more. Than, than, than our morals. I think our morals perhaps come out of our values. And so <clears throat> this whole subject of values, I think, has been really neglected. And people think only in terms of morals. They think whether they're honest, whether they're uh, pure, whether and, and that's good. And we should think about that. But when we're done with that, we're still not at the heart of what Jesus was concerned about, which was our values. <clears throat> and so uh, the other character I think about when I think about this subject is John Rohr. John Rohr raised a family of something like 15, 16 children. And if you, fo- if you look at his family, they're basically all following the faith of their father. Uh, how many of you know John Rohr or knew of him? Uh, well, I can't see you, but anyway, I, I, I can't see all of you. Uh, well, John Rohr told a story one time that I think illustrates why his family followed him. His boy had gone to uh, another uh, part of the community where they were farming land away from home. And on his way home, <clears throat> the tractor engine blew up. And so he walked home. And when he got home, his father inquired about it. And he said, well, the tractor overheated. His father said, well, why didn't you stop for water? And, he, and, and John Moore, when he tells it, says he was somewhat angry because his son had neglected that. And his son said, Dad, the only place between that piece of land and our farm was a little garage. And I was in that garage one time, and the walls are, are, are covered with obscene photographs. And he said, I did not want to expose myself to that. And I remember John Rohr saying with tears in his eyes, what is the price of a tractor worth against the purity of my son? And I think that tells you the nuances of the heart that this man passed on to his children, that no material thing had as much value as the spiritual life of his children. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you do not get this right, you will not see right. You won't put things in proper perspective. Um, uh, Peter says that some people are blind. They cannot see afar off. Spiritual blindness is not that you can't see. It's that you don't see far off into the future. You see only the present. And there's nothing like material things that will gear your thinking to the present. There's nothing like material things to gear your thinking to the present. And so unless we get this straight, we will think in terms of the present instead of the future. We will not see it far off. 
So uh, the third thing Jesus says is you cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, He doesn't say cannot or should not. He says cannot. Uh, He says where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Uh, uh, You cannot serve both. You know, the rich fool that laid up treasures. If you go to the parable of the rich fool that laid up treasures and built larger barns, if you read that, it says, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's interesting that the word is and, not but. We like to read it. So is he that layeth up treasure, but is not rich toward God, as if you can do both. But the word is and. It says, if you lay up treasure, you will not be rich toward God. Uh, In fact, where you lay up treasure, there will be your worship. Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Uh, Whatever we serve, that's what we're worshiping. The word worship is actually the old English word worthship, which has the idea of value, worth, W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P. And so the things that we value are the things that we're worshiping. And so uh, if we value money, we will be worshiping money, uh, regardless of what we say. Uh, We cannot serve two masters. Uh, We either are serving mammon, which says accumulate, or we're serving God, that says distribute liberally. Uh, uh, Timothy says, charge them that, or Paul says to Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. Uh, So I think he's picturing someone who has come into money, maybe by inheritance. Uh, He's supposed to be ready to distribute. The second command is lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, How do you do that? Well, Jesus once told somebody to sell their possessions and give to the poor, and they'd have treasure in heaven. And everybody immediately says, that's the rich young ruler. But if you turn to Luke 12, verses 22, 32 to 34, you will find that he was speaking to his disciples. He does not only give this uh, command to the rich young ruler. He's giving it to everybody. He says, if you, if you give, you'll be laying up treasures in heaven. So that's how we lay up treasures in heaven. The story is told, and I like to tell this story. I think it was the favorite story of one of the philosophers of a man who was washed up on an island. Uh, from a shipwreck and uh, the uh, people on the island met him on the shore and carried him inland and and set him on a throne and uh, they told him that uh, every year they choose a man to be king for a year and so they had chosen him to be king for a year because of some superstitious belief they had and so he was king and uh, he began to wonder well what happened to the other kings and then he found out that after the year that king was banished to an island where there was nothing for him to eat, and uh, he was left there to starve. So he decided, well, he's going to be king for a year. He'll make provision for this. So he sent men to the the island and had them uh, 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 develop irrigation systems, plant crops, plant trees, uh, build all kinds of structures. Uh, So at the end, he was banished to an island of wealth instead of an island where he would uh, perish. And that's a little bit what Jesus is saying that if we really want to have treasures in heaven, we have to send it ahead by by giving. I one time visited a wealthy uncle, and uh, he was driving us to the beach in his brand-new Lincoln Continental. And he said, Johnny, he knew what I believed. He said, Johnny, he said, you can't take it with you. You might as well enjoy it here. And I said, Uncle, you can't take it with you. You can take every penny of it with you, but you have to send it ahead. You have to give it. You have to you have to lay up treasure in heaven by giving it away. So <clears throat> I'd like now to look at Luke chapter six, what Jesus actually has to say about uh, this uh, subject there. Luke chapter six. This is one of my favorite uh, uh, passages in Luke. <clears throat> Let me read it. <clears throat> for if you love them which love you, what thank have you? The word there for thank is caris, which means grace. Or it's another way of saying, what Christianity have you? Sinners also love, uh, for sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them that love you, that do good to you, what Christianity have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, 
what Christianity have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. And that's an interesting statement because we're always talking about whether it's right to charge interest. And he says, even sinners can loan money without interest and love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And I always remember a Sunday school class where I read that verse and one of the older men just blurted out saying, that's not lending, that's giving, <laughs> which is what is the whole point that Jesus is making. Lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. Another passage in Luke, which by the way, Luke was the book that changed my life. I one time decided to teach the book of Luke to a high school class. And uh, I didn't get very far because I realized that Jesus was touching on this subject of almost every other chapter, almost every chapter. And uh, it completely changed my whole outlook on the subject. But Luke 16 is my favorite parable. I'd like to spend just a little bit of time with it. Uh, This is what Jesus says in Luke 16. And he said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. So he was going to fire him because he had misused his wealth. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou to my Lord? And he answered, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take the, thy bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he's still cheating his uh, master. He's giving away half his half of the uh, amount here. And he's, <clears throat> uh, then he said he to another, and how much was thou? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take that bill and write four score. So again, he's still misusing his stewardship. And the Lord commanded the unjust steward. Now, this isn't Jesus commanding him. This is his secular master commanding him. Because he had done wisely. For the children of this world in their generation are wiser than the children of light. I mean, people know that if you give things away, you stack up a bunch of IOUs. And so they realize that that giving has benefits. Uh, even selfish benefits. And Jesus says that the people of this world and the way they use their wealth are much smarter than the, than the people of the kingdom if they're not careful. Because they, they, you know, sometimes we get the idea that giving is an expense like paying the electric bill, a money that is used that you'll never see again. Giving is not an expense. Giving is an investment. It's an investment for the future. And I really think if we came to see it that way, it would change our attitude about giving. Um, But the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is the word uh, uh, for hilarity, hilaros. God loves a giver that just, (laughs) it's a hilarious experience for him. He loves to give because he understands that giving is an investment. Uh, the Bible says, cast your bread upon the waters and you shall find it after many days. And that is the theme of giving in the entire Bible. The liberal soul shall be made fat, uh, the proverb says. And, and we <clears throat> somehow we have to get past this idea that giving is an expense. It is an investment. And we should do it with joy, uh, with, with an understanding of what it is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The children of this world, they really do understand this better than Christians do. And I say unto you, make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So he's saying it's an investment for the future. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. If ye therefore have been not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give to you that which is your own. And I often have to wonder how many people are devoid of spiritual gifts because they have not proven 
their faithfulness by the stuff that to God is relatively worthless. And so he gives us this relatively worthless uh, material stuff just as a test to see how we handle his the possessions he gives us. And then he decides whether he's going to give us the true riches. John Wesley, I think, understood that. <clears throat> and despite the differences we may have with John Wesley, we would disagree with his infant baptism. We would disagree with his membership in the Church of England. But I think God looked at this one uh, characteristic of Wesley and decided to lavish upon him many spiritual gifts. Uh, they say that John Wesley, with the sale of his books, made in today's money about $140,000 a year. And he kept in today's money about $14,000 a year for himself and the rest he gave away. And if you read his journal, he probably gave a lot of the $14,000 away as well. And so <clears throat> what Jesus is saying here is God qualifies us for better for our spiritual gifts by looking at what we do with the unrighteous mammon that he gives to us. And if you uh, no servant can serve two masters for either he, Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So there he repeats that uh, concept. Now people say, well, I'm going to give it away after I die. I'll put it in my will. Well, as soon as you die, the money is no longer yours. So you can't play that game with God. So <clears throat> the third command is take no thought for your life or no anxious thought for your life, uh, as most translations give it. In God's kingdom, our needs will be provided as a matter of course. Jesus makes that very clear. And we need to give them no anxious thought. In fact, Jesus' words sort of reflect astonishment that we would worry about such things. Because as, as he shows us, God's care is obvious uh, if we look around us. And so I'd like to just go down through the reasons that he gives that we don't need to worry about this. Number one, God gave us life. And life is far more complicated than the foods that are required to sustain it. I mean, the foods, it, it would be much, it, it, logically, we understand it'd be much easier for God to make a potato plant than it would be for him to make a human body with all the miraculous wonders that it represents. And so he's saying the, the life is much more than the meat it takes to sustain it. So why can't we logically understand that if God made us, the complicated uh, organism that we are, why can't we trust him for something much simpler, which is the food to sustain it? Number two, the animals do not accumulate. And it's interesting, he did not choose squirrels uh, to illustrate his point because squirrels do accumulate, but they accumulate for their future uh, and their futures on this earth. So that makes sense that they accumulate for their future on this earth. Our future is beyond this earth, and we should do the same thing the squirrel is doing. We should prepare for the future that, uh, that we are going to experience. But anyway, <clears throat> here he chooses birds. Well, birds do practically nothing uh, for the future. They spend all their time building their nests and singing little songs and being happy and uh, just expecting that every day they'll find them, uh, the worms they need to sustain their life. So <clears throat> he says animals, uh, at least some of the animals, uh, demonstrate God's daily care. So we're more important than animals. Uh, why, why do we worry? The third thing he gives is that worry is useless. Uh, if we can do something about our needs, I think God expects us to do that. But if the situation is inevitable, then we should understand that God will take care of the inevitabilities of our life. And, and uh, we, there's nothing we can do about the inevitable. Uh, you can't think yourself taller. There are people who are short that wish they were taller. There are people who are tall that wish they were shorter. Uh, they, if they stand in front of a mirror and worry for an hour, uh, they'll still be the same height. Uh, so worry is useless. <clears throat> Number four, uh, he talks about the lilies, uh, that God takes care of them right up to the very last. I often think about that when I mow the lawn. There's that blade of grass, and God takes care of it right up to the time when my, the blade of my mower hits it which that's interesting because why? Why wouldn't God cut off the supply uh, the day before? Or what, you know, why does he take care of the, uh, uh, the lilies and the grass that tomorrow is going to be cast into the oven? Uh, why would he just uh, quit worrying about uh, their needs uh, before that? But he doesn't. He takes care of them right up to the last. 
And I think that's the lesson we need to learn that God will take care of us right up to the last. <clears throat> the fifth reason he gives is if we seek Christ's kingdom, all of our needs will be taken care of. <coughs> the most envied jobs in the United States are government jobs because governments take really good care of their people and uh, everybody wants a government job. Well, the kingdom of God is the best government job you could have and God uh, is the best uh, government manager. So why in the world would he not take care of the people who are serving him well in his kingdom? And so here is the promise that if we seek God's kingdom, he will take care of our needs. We are servants of his government. And the last reason he gives is we will receive great grace sufficient for each day. And we need to see that as a promise. That is a promise that each day's needs will be met. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, I think uh, in praying that prayer, we're committing ourselves uh, to uh, accepting what we have each day, not worrying about the future. Uh, the Bible says, as thy day, so shall thy strength be. So uh, if we worry about tomorrow, that's a worthless worry because uh, we will be given what we need tomorrow. And today we're going to be worrying and we're going to be lessening our strength to do what we need to do today. We need to trust that tomorrow will take care of itself if we meet our responsibilities today. Now, I'm not talking about sitting on your front porch expecting God to meet your needs for tomorrow. You're going to be meeting your responsibilities for the day. And if you do that, your, your needs for tomorrow, he promises us, will be taken care of. Now, that's basically Jesus' three teachings on the subject. Do not lay up treasure for yourself on this earth. In other words, don't make a deposit uh, on this earth uh, of, of things that you don't need. Uh, <clears throat> number two, lay up treasures in heaven. And we do that by giving. And we should be lavish givers if we understand that, that, that it's an investment, not, not, a, not a, uh, a, a, a cost. And finally, we are not to give anxious thought for tomorrow. We're to put our whole heart into meeting the responsibilities we have today and make sure we're focused on his kingdom in our activities. And then he will take care of our needs. A few additional thoughts that I would like to give on the subject uh, that come from other par parts of the scripture. Number one, <clears throat> Christians show their separation by their economics. Jesus said, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. And I've said already that Jesus tells two ways that Christians are to be separate from the world. And uh, Mennonites, of course, are very interested in separation from the world. But Jesus only made two statements where he specifically addressed the issue of separation. This is one of them. He says, you will not be like the Gentiles. They lay up treasures on earth. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. And if you do that, let's call it heathenomics. We're doing like the Gentiles do. The other one was that the, on this earth, uh, rulers lorded over their people. But in God's kingdom, uh, leaders serve. They don't rule over others. So the Christian shows his separation by his economics. The next thing I would notice is Jesus chose to be poor. It says, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And we all say we want to be Christ-like. But he chose, he deliberately chose not to accumulate wealth on this earth. Now, the word poverty sometimes is a put off for some people when I talk about voluntary poverty. Well, if you look up the word poverty in the dictionary, it means to live below the accepted level. It's not destitution. It does not mean that you live destitute. Uh, it means that you choose not to live on the level that other people think they need. Number The next the reason I give is riches are deceitful. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus talks about the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Uh, and I've often said uh, alcohol is deceitful. Some people can't use it without overusing it. And so we commit ourselves not to use any alcohol uh, for fear that somebody will not be able to handle it. Why don't we have the same concern about money? Uh, we know that many people get drawn into this snare. Why can't we uh, have some precautions against it just like we do for alcohol? That's a question I've often asked. The Bible says they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
The next reason I would give is God favors the poor. All my life, I was told God doesn't necessarily have any premium on poverty. But the Bible says, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? I mean, obviously, the person who's poor has learned to trust God. He has to. Uh, George Mueller said <clears throat> that, that uh, he was going to demonstrate to England that God exists by not accumulating wealth, but, but depending on God for his needs. And so at the end of his life, he said it was as easy for him to trust God for a uh, hundred thousand pounds as at the beginning it had been for him to trust God for a shilling. And so we build our trust in God by leaving ourselves vulnerable uh, and, and, and watching him meet our needs. Uh, Jesus also said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Uh, in Mary's uh, uh, song that she sang uh, after the angel appeared to her, she said, he hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich is sent empty away. Yes, the Bible does say that God has a special care for the poor. Uh, it, it is true that he favors them. Uh, the next thing I would notice is God pronounces woe on the rich. Woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Uh, and of course, we have the parable or the story of rich man and Lazarus. The next thing I would mention is God measures the gift by what is left. Uh, the widow, <clears throat> uh, he, he mentioned that she had given all her living. Uh, the others cast in a lot more than she did. But God counted uh, the amount that was given by what was left. And uh, he said her gift was worth more than all the others. And the last thing I would notice is <clears throat> deaccumulation is a credible evidence of repentance. When the people came to John the Baptist and he said, bring forth fruits that demonstrate repentance, they said, what shall we do? And be interesting to me, if you ask that question uh, to a congregation of people, what do you think the evidence for true repentance is? I wonder if one person in the congregation would, would say what John said. John said, if you have an extra coat, give it away. If you have extra food, give it away. John said, this is the evidence for repentance. <clears throat> uh, and then we have the example of Zacchaeus. Uh, I, we don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. But at the end, Zacchaeus said, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anybody, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus didn't say, no, wait a minute, Zacchaeus, you've gotten the cart before the horse. You need to get converted first, and you need to deal with uh, uh, your whole life, not just this one area. But I think uh, that one area told Jesus everything about Zacchaeus. Any man who's willing to do what Zacchaeus has done has definitely had a change of heart. Because <clears throat> before we become Christians, uh, everything comes in our direction. But when we become Christians, everything flows out to others and to God. So <clears throat> that's basically where I'm going to end uh, this discussion. If you have any questions, uh, could you? Sir, uh, what was that word for a renter? Could you spell it, please, and give the... E-N-T-I-E-R, and I pronounced it in the French, Racha. I'll say that again slowly, please. R-E-N-T-I-E-R, pronounced -E Racha by the French. R-E-N-T-I-E-R. That's correct. And it is French. That is. Thank you. Well, thanks for sharing, Brother John. I have lots of questions. I'll start with one that maybe is the most pressing. So in our American civilization, we have this period of 10 to 20 or 30 years called retirement, when many people are unable to to uh, do the physical jobs they used to do, at least. And uh, we certainly have an, an expectation on us that we save up for that time period. What would a biblical culture look like? And how should we think about that period? Jesus said, Peter says, we've given away everything. What shall we have then? And Jesus said, a hundredfold more in this life now and in the life to come. The Anabaptists saw that as the Christian community, uh, that uh, assets were shared. They were fluid. They flowed from where the need to where the need was, from where there was where there were resources. And they saw the Christian community as the fulfillment 
of God's prophecies concerning the kingdom, where everybody's needs would be met. And if you notice in Acts 4, I think it is, or Acts 2, one of those, it says there was nobody who, who had need. And so <clears throat> that's how they saw it. They saw that the needs would be taken care of within the Christian community. Can you share how you would like to see this done in your church? Well, I told you before we started, those of you who were listening, we had hoped to get everybody out of debt. And then we had hoped we could put up the money uh, for anything that anybody needed uh, rather than pay for it afterwards, pay for it ahead of time. Uh, but we were never able to realize that because our, we were uh, – we had lots of people coming into our congregation that had debt, and we tried to help them out of debt. Uh, and we still have people who have debt. Uh, but yes, uh, the people in our congregation who have not been able to earn have been taken care of by the congregation. And we have been able to do that. I have a comment and a question. Uh, John, I really appreciated listening and learning from you. And um, as I have... I spend a good bit of time in the developing world in Asia. And um, as I have walked with saints and believers that would live the Bible like we teach, in a very, well, that's what it says. What does that mean? How do I live that out in daily life? And I have been convicted in my own life as I have seen them. Well, I don't know what I'll do. I'll, I'll trust God and uh, lose a job, don't have a home, all kinds of things. And, and it's caused me to look inward in my own life and say, well, if that happens, then I do this. If that happens, then I do this. And, and eventually I get to the end of my do this and I cry out to God. And, and that has just been a tremendous uh, conviction to me to really, <laughs> you know, where does God want me? And uh, in my own journey on this, this topic, I, I, I tend to want to uh, take take parts of life and okay i know what god wants me to do a check and move on and like you said you know sin is easy to avoid like the young man that walked home with the burned up tractor because he was going to avoid that that uh, obscene pictures and that's easy but money like you said it's not like that so i i think god wants us to continually wrestle through this and, yes. and he wants our heart he yes. doesn't want a checkbox you know yes. I do some business advising and I'm alarmed at how the Anabaptist communities view debt, number one, and number two, the lack of stewardship and managing financial resources. Yes. They have no clue yes. what, what might be going on. And uh, it, it's like managing our time or, or any other resource that God has trusted in our care. But here's, here's my question. You know, I'd say the Anabaptist community has not done well on this topic. And I'm not, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around why that is, other than you think in generations gone before in deep poverty and the children had to work or they didn't eat in the winter and depression and I don't know what all. But at some point, the stewardship and the teaching and learning trades that has gone over center and and we have we have excess and it's like it sprang upon us and we weren't prepared for it so what do we do with it and you know we are good at holding each other accountable in all kinds of areas but not this one yes. and why is it and when people from non-anabaptist background come into our circles wow you i'm so inspired the bible says it you live it until we get to the subject of possessions and materialism and money and then it's like what happened why yes. so my question what what are some ways in brotherly love that we can walk together as brothers and congregations that we raise the bar on this. Is it sharing our 1040s? Is it, you know, that's obviously the whole extreme, but there's gotta be ways that are biblical and real and holding each other accountable. I, I'm wrestling with this. I don't have any answers other than just cry out to God, God help me, you know? I don't know. Well, the first thing we can do is teach it. 
I mean, mm-hmm. what I taught this morning is not heard by almost any Anabaptist congregation ever. Uh, so I think, first of all, we need to teach it. And secondly, I think we need to bring some accountability. And our congregation requires that everyone who joins commits himself not to accumulate wealth for himself. Now, you're going to say, what does that mean? We don't define that very carefully uh, because you get into trouble when you start to give specific definitions. But what it means for our people is if you have a business that meets your needs, then don't be making it bigger. Uh, now, now you get into the thing of, well, if I make it a little bit bigger, I can hire some people in the brotherhood and I can help people. And, and some of the, a little bit of that has been done in our brotherhood. Uh, <clears throat> the second thing is our people know they're not to accumulate for retirement. Uh, and, uh, so, but we don't police that. We don't make a huge issue over little decisions that people make. But if we saw somebody just expanding, expanding, expanding business, uh, for obvious reasons, that would be addressed. We would say, you, you promised not to do that when you came into this brotherhood. Uh, if we saw a person laying up huge amounts of money for retirement, again, that would be brought into question. So the two things I would say is, first of all, we need to get clear teaching on it. And secondly, we need to do something to bring some accountability. Yeah, um, that subject of accountability, um, one way that I've um, been blessed to experience a little bit of that years or so ago, someone in our congregation decided to offer to listen to Gary Miller's talks on um, Kingdom Focus Finances and invited anyone from the church to come and listen to that. And we did. And then one brother afterwards um, said, well, how are we going to? Um, bring some accountability to ourselves in this and invited others to um, if anyone was interested and willing to start a little accountability group with him and in which we would share each other's finances uh, once a quarter I think or maybe twice a year and so I'm blessed to be a part of that little effort in that direction um, I did have another question um, that has to do with insurance. Um, I grew up in a community that was very strong against insurances. If at all possible, avoid them with, you know, going to some pretty great lengths to avoid it. And um, now I'm a part of a community where it's viewed more as a way of bearing one's burdens instead of putting them on other people to get insurance. And so I'm wondering how you look at that in one way. It's on this subject of having anxious thought about the future. Um, It's one way of taking away some of the anxiety about the future. Is that Jesus' way? I think whatever security there is financially should be in the Christian community. I wanted to give you James, Dr. James Stairs, uh, five uh, principles that he derived from his study of uh, Anabaptist economics in the early years, at least. Number one, they rejected all taking of interest as usury and as a manifest evil. Uh, So that was one of the principles. Number two, that they rejected any agreement in which the borrower bore the entire risk. They considered that to be evil. Uh, Number three, they insisted that all income should be acquired by the labor of one's own hands. They were opposed to investments. Number four, they believed that no money should be borrowed unless a person was in need. Uh, And number five, they taught that Christians should live as equally as possible as pictured in Acts 2 and 4. Uh, so uh, I guess the, the, the one thing that really hits us hard that they believed, they believed it was wrong to invest money. In their mind, that was somebody living off of the sweat of somebody else's labor and, th- and that they were totally opposed to. Uh, they believed that, that all income should be the result of you doing something, producing something. It should be the work of your own hands. Uh, so Who was that quote from? J- Dr. James Stair. Uh, you you would profit by reading. I forget what his 
but he has written a book on the subject and I have had it in my hands borrowed. I don't have a copy of it, but he spent his whole life studying the uh, economics of the early Anabaptists. They really did intend to live in, with, by community of goods, not like the Hutterites necessarily, but living in a way that, that everything that I have is yours. Uh, and they were really interested in the ideal of Acts 2 and Acts 4. Thank you. John, it's Ray Miller from Glenmont, Ohio. You can't see me on your Zoom screen because I don't have that either. Hey, but can you hear me, Ray? Hey, first of all, thanks for the uh, what you had, which I've heard you speak about this before, of course. But I have one comment, then I have a question, maybe two, depending. Uh, the comment is you talked about where your treasure is. There is your heart. I like to take that one step further than in Luke six. Where he said, for the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. So, you know, where your treasure is, that's probably what you wanted to speak of talking about. If it's making money, or if it's shooting the big buck, or if it's, you know, whatever. But my question is, would you, um, the first question is, would you agree with what John Wesley, I think it was John Wesley said this, I read it in Roger's book, but I can't remember for sure who said it, that you should work as hard as you can, make all the money you can, and give all the money away you can, or should you just be satisfied in earning enough for a living? If you can earn $150 an hour uh, and not violate any kingdom principles, by all means do so. I, I'm, I'm, more convinced, I'm more concerned about what you do with it. I mean, obviously, if you have that kind of earning power, you have a tremendous ability to help a lot of people. So it's not a it's not a problem of how much you earn; it's a problem of how much you keep. Okay, I, that's that's why I felt you would feel, but you still uh, you can be careful when you're trying to make so much money. You can't be misled. The money can become an idol. The earning. Um, the other question is, how do you have the discernment to know when it's better to spend a little more on yourself for a quality product rather than, you know, um, not as good product? Because the quality product would last longer, and you're spending it for yourself on this. Uh, that's one of that's those. one place I really struggle with. Yeah, that's one of those areas where you're going to have to learn what God wants you to do. I mean, I always opted for the cheap product and uh, I've learned many things the hard way. And I sometimes don't buy the cheapest product. <laughs> but that's, that's where we get into trouble when we start making specific uh, uh, suggestions. Uh, God's going to have to help you decide that, Brother Ray. But I appreciate the question. You know, I've often wondered when people get sick, <clears throat> they call for the anointing of the church. But what does God do if they have laid up a, a lot of money to take care of that need? You know, I'm afraid I'm going to have cancer. So they, they've laid up money to take care of that need. I think it's rather hypocritical then to ask for the anointing of the church when you have the money in hand to pay for the medical route. Uh, and I'm not saying you shouldn't take the medical route, but, but I would feel like I was a hypocrite if I, if I was prepared to deal with my situation and then I asked God to take care of it. Wow. Well, thanks a lot, John, for your morning, and God bless. God bless you, Brother Ray. It's a blessing to have you on. So one of the questions I've had sometimes is, uh, I live in northern Minnesota, and I need firewood for my heating. And I lay up two years of firewood because winter's coming. And I'm commended for that because I have... I'm prepared. Um, how is retirement different than that? Or a new vehicle that I'm going to need in a couple of years? Um, and and I'm, I've been taught that we don't save for retirement, but we know that's coming. And we know that there will be a time when I cannot do as much as I could. So how is that different than my firewood? Well, we don't know that it's coming. Uh, Jesus said to the fool that did that, this night shall thy heart so, uh, soul be required of thee. Uh, it's it's the problem of laying up for the unknown future. 
I, I don't think God faults us for canning for, for the winter that is coming uh, or, or uh, preparing to buy a car or even preparing to buy a house. These are immediate needs. Uh, there are some people that have chosen not to do that, and God has honored their faith. So I'm not saying that we should do that necessarily. But there's a difference between needs that are, that are pretty eminent and needs that we don't have any idea that we'll ever have. Uh, I'm a 75-year-old man. I have made no provisions for retirement. God has given me a job I can work at as long as I have my right mind uh, here in my office. Uh, and, and when that uh, doesn't, when I can't do that anymore, then I just simply have to trust God that he will take care of me. But those are immediate needs you're mentioning about. At least they're imminent needs. I uh, make a difference between those and, and uh, uh, needs for an unknown future. Well, like we're getting close we, to... We can, go ahead. Go ahead like Clyde said, too, it's something we need to wrestle with continually and to put our trust in God continually. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, I, I like to have the, and I like to know where it is and have it all figured out. And uh, yeah. God likes us to trust. Yeah. It's a mindset that God wants us to have. And I don't think he's going to fault us if, if we don't always get it right. But he wants us to have this mindset of laying up treasures in heaven and, and seeing everything that we have on this earth as a means to that end and to use it as a means to that end. That's the mindset that he wants us to have. And God does not fault us for our imperfections when he knows the passion of our heart. If you want to know where your treasure is, your treasure is where your greatest passion expresses itself. Whatever gets you the most excited, that's where your treasure is. And for most people, it's not the kingdom. They talk most and you get most excited about their vacation, about their wealth, about their business, about their hobbies. Your treasure is where your passion is. And well, that really, brings us to the end of our hour. Um, Philip, did you have a thought? I had a question. Okay, go ahead. In uh, William Law's book, The Christians, um, uh, what's his book called? Devout, a, a Serious Call to Devout yeah. Holy Life. He talks about the, um, the value of having a passive income so that you can be living on whatever stipend you have for the year while doing good deeds, spending your life in prayer, etc. What are your thoughts about that? I think I would, I think I would disagree. What does he mean by passive income investment? I'm not sure if he really clarifies that. Um, I've wondered that myself, how that was working in his economy. Well, just because I really appreciate what, and agree with almost everything he said. It does not make me obligated to agree with that. I disagree. Okay. Thank you. Maybe we'll take one more comment or question. Um, praise the Lord for this discussion. It's obvious that this is something that is very close to our hearts. Um, and it's something that we wrestle with on a daily basis. Every time we pull out our wallets, is this for the glory of God? It's a question that came in through the chat, uh, maybe a little bit off topic, but it says, I'm curious what your thought is on Christians accepting government stimulus payments. Well, if you're Social Security exempt, you shouldn't. If you're paying Social Security and taxes, uh, I have no problem with receiving it. It's, to me, it's just a return on money I've already paid. But if you disagree with that, I'll, 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 be, uh, I'll support your disagreement. Uh, one comment, I, I served for a little while with a, with a full-time missionary, and I was dismayed when he told me that his home congregation told him that when he comes back from the mission field uh, and is retired, he cannot expect them to support him, that he needs to make provisions for his retirement, even if he's on the mission field. Now, that was a conservative Mennonite congregation, and I was horrified. Um, that's the kind of things that, that go on in our communities, despite what, I, what Jesus has clearly said. Thank you for that.
I could just quickly ask a question here. You mentioned about missions and all. I'm just curious what your thoughts on faith-based missions would be in regards to uh, finances. I'm all for faith-based missions if they're not independent missions. Uh, I think the Bible clearly teaches that those who go out to spread the gospel should be sent. They should be authorized and and, uh, supported by the congregation that sent them. Uh, But if a person wants to go under a congregation's authority and tell the congregation, look, uh, don't worry about my support. I'm going to trust God for that. That'll be fine. But I am opposed to people going out and doing mission work on their own uh, and then expecting God to, to, to support them. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, thank you, Brother John. Could I conclude with a willing. story? Could I conclude with a story? Mm-hmm. This is a, a story I love to conclude all these discussions with. An old mission. This is a true story. There was an old missionary couple that had served on the mission field, and until uh, finally they had to come home. And they had served so long that people even forgot who they were. And they were on the same ship that Teddy Roosevelt was on, coming home from one of his safaris to Africa with all his trophies. And when they got to San Francisco, Teddy Roosevelt left the ship uh, to a ticker tape parade and everybody went with him. And this this uh, old couple was standing on the ship by themselves. And for one moment, the old missionary uh, brother gave way to a little bit of bitterness. And he said to his wife, this isn't fair. He goes for two weeks and comes home with these trophies. And look what he gets. We serve the Lord on the mission field all our lives. And look what we get. Nobody even here to welcome us. And she looked at him and she said, honey, we are not home yet. Amen. Amen. That shows a a state of mind and uh, a right placement of the heart, for sure. Um, To remember that we're not a part of this world. This isn't where our, our kingdom is. That's one thing that has become clear to me through this is it's it's a it's a state of the heart and it's like every other decision that we grapple with um with the christian life is we'll make the decisions based on the state of our heart and um the placement of our love you know in eternal things in with our lord that will that will probably do a lot more for us in making the right decisions and making sure that the state of our heart is right um, I'm very grateful for this discussion this morning. And, and the, I've wondered if the reason we struggle with things like uh, accountability with money and things like that is how much it actually, how close it comes to the heart. You know, we can talk about some of our other struggles a little freely, but money is difficult and people often bristle when you try to talk about it. And I think that shows how close it actually comes to the the core of who we are and um it should be should be a warning to us i guess and there is a lot i mean someone told me recently that there's more teaching on money in the bible than there is on love and i can't i haven't verified that you mentioned something about that um brother john that there was you know there's lots of it there and i think that also is a sign of um the danger of it and how close it can come to the core of who we are so God bless you um, for sharing that with us. And thank you for everyone that shared with questions and, and comments. Um, it was a terrific discussion. Brother John, would you, well, actually, before we go, I'll make a couple announcements here. Um, we, again, we're meeting again next weekend, March 13th at six o'clock in the morning, Eastern time. And that'll be Brother Merle Burkholder sharing in the power of a story. I'm guessing we're going to get some stories. That'll be um, an interesting, interesting talk. And then the following weekend is Tools for Developing Sexual Integrity by Tim Kupfer. Is that right, Brian? I forgot to write his name down. Correct. Tim Tim Kupfer. Okay. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's another topic that um, is pertinent to hear sound teaching on. And um, the ne- the following weekend, we have another special event. It's a two-part event by Pablo Yoder. So you're all welcome to join us on that. 
Um, we'll be having one at six in the morning Eastern time again, and at one at three o'clock in the afternoon with Pablo Yoder. And that is on March 27th. So that brings us to the conclusion of this morning. Uh, thanks again for sharing and thanks everyone for joining us this morning. Uh, Brother John, would you close us with some prayer? Sure. Our Father in heaven, help us to see that you are our Father. And like any father, you have ultimate concern about your children. And help us, Lord, to trust that as we make these decisions. Help us to realize that our decisions make us and that uh, we cannot, with impunity, do things without it affecting our hearts and without changing us in the direction of our decisions. And so bless us, Lord, as we go through this day. Help us to wrestle with these issues and help us to make decisions that demonstrate that our first priority is, in fact, your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you all as you seek to serve him today. Go with God. Amen. God bless you. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.